0: made everything is mindful of us here this morning man let's pray together father we thank you for the truth of that song that that who are we that you are mindful of us i mean god you are so good you are perfect in every way and yet you take the time to wipe away our tears i mean you take the time to 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 engage us and you pursue us uh, that every teacher of the time of Jesus would, would make you come before them and beg to follow them, but yet you go and you pursue your followers. Man, a wonderful truth. We're so thankful. We love you a lot. In Jesus' name, amen. Kids, you are dismissed. Have a wonderful time. I'm not kidding. I think half the church just went out those doors. (laughs) Amazing. So good. Hey, I'm going to read from James chapter 2. This is our main passage here today. Uh, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, going through 18. It says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you My faith by my works. The scriptures are as relevant today as they were then. Amen? Well, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker here today. He is the president of Appalachia Service Project. I've known him for, let's see, 34 years, I think. Uh, This is my father, Walter Crouch. Please welcome him to the stage.
1: all yours. Well, good morning. good morning. Good to see you this morning. And uh, Dallas, I'm glad you kept it a secret that I was speaking today because the crowd is up. That's good. I like, I like that. So anyway, it's good to be here this morning and it's always uh, a privilege to uh, step into a pulpit at any church because in a way it's a sacred place and a an incredible responsibility and uh, one of the things that i talked to dallas about was he said he was starting this series about testimony and today you'll hear a testimony but it won't be my testimony i think you'll know whose testimony it is when i get into the sermon this morning how many of you how many of you have ever hiked to the top of mount lecon there we go i see a few hands how many of you just have hiked though maybe not to the top of Mount Lecon you like hiking yeah I mean you're in the area to hike right I mean one of the most amazing people I've heard was a a young woman at a a morning rotary club meeting who set the world record for a woman speed hiking the Appalachian Trail I mean she beat the record like by weeks and uh, we're actually negotiating with her to come and speak to our, our staff at ASP I had a friend named Tom that I worked with down at Carson Newman. It was a big hiker, a great hiker. He's passed away now. But he told me, Walter, there are three main rules of hiking. That is, you eat before you're hungry, you drink before you're thirsty, and you rest before you're tired. I mean, that sounds almost impossible to do. But he said, if you will do that, you can hike all day and keep hiking. I think there's a fourth rule, too. And this rule has to do with an illustration I'm about to use. And that is, you never hike alone. You never hike alone. I mean, there was a fellow that didn't take that advice, and he went hiking up in the Smokies on one of the trails, and sure enough, he's walking along a sharp ledge, he slips on a rock, and he falls. 600-foot cliff. He falls. But as he's falling on the way down, there was this, like, little tree or bush that was, like, growing out of the side of the cliff. And so he quickly scrambled and tried to grab that, and sure enough, he grabbed it, and it held. And he thought to himself, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm... And then he looked down, and he was still 400 feet off the ground. So he did what any of us would do. He started calling out, help, help! Is anybody up there? Can anybody hear me? Nothing. Now, he did this for what seemed like hours, but was probably 10 or 15 minutes. And finally he got to a point of desperation where he thought, I need to pray. I mean, isn't that the way it is? We finally get to a spot where we should pray rather than praying from the beginning. We always have to be in a dire consequence like this guy was. And he finally prayed. So he's hanging there and he prays, oh God, please send somebody up on the path above me so that I can be saved. Nothing. Oh Lord, please. Send somebody. And then all of a sudden there was a voice. Yes, I hear you. He goes, oh, great, oh, great, oh, thank God. And the voice says, you're welcome. <laughs> what? Who is this? This is God. I'm here to help you. Uh-huh. Um, what do you want me to do? Just let go of the branch and I'll catch you Say what (laughs) Just let go of the branch and I'll catch you Is there anybody else up there? I mean, it's a silly story, right? I mean, in that moment, in that crisis, could you imagine having to try to obey the voice of God? I mean, my luck, it would have been Dallas up there just pretending, right? (laughs) So, but it does point to a, a question that I have, and that is how do we express our faith? What does faith mean? How How does our faith live itself out in the everyday world? In the passage that Dallas read from James chapter 2, James kind of asks that question. I mean, he basically says out loud to those in the church, how do you live out your faith? He challenges them saying, "Can, can you really say you have faith if there's no works associated with faith? In fact, the question he's really asking the church is, can a person whose faith has no works, can that person be saved? I mean, apparently there were people in the church that were professing to be Christians, professing to be saved, but yet there were no works to go along with that profession of faith. And so James questions them and says, basically, through this passage, What good is faith without works? And he uses a wonderful illustration where he talks about if someone doesn't have clothing and doesn't have food, and all you say to them is be warm and be filled, or in modern day lingo, I'll pray for you. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You ever been there? I've been there. I'll pray for you, and then later on I realize how hypocritical that is. Okay, I pray for them, but... I might be the answer to their prayers, right? And James says, what good is that? What use is that? And then he lays down the gauntlet in verse 18. And he says, look, you show me your faith without works, but I will show you my faith by my works. Now, we think that the author of James is the brother of Jesus. Therefore, you know, he probably comes from Nazareth. But honestly, in that verse, where he says, show me. I would swear he's from the state of Missouri, right? Because Missouri is the show-me state, right? And you know how it got its name? There was a congressman by the name of Vandiver, Willard Vandiver, that they were trying to convince, this is like at the turn of the, the, the 19th century, you know, 1899, 1900, turn into the 20th century. Anyway, they were trying to persuade him on a bill, and he finally stopped them, and he said, look, frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, you got to show me. Basically, James is saying, you can say all the words you want, all the frothy eloquence in the world, but it doesn't convince me of the faith that you are supposed to have inside. Words sometimes just aren't enough. Be warm and be filled. Does that make the naked person feel any warmer? Does that make the hungry person feel satisfied? Faith without works is dead. Let me give you, how do we then reconcile? I am a person that is saved by faith alone, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. How do we marry that up with the need for works in our lives? Well, I want to give you a working definition of faith real quick. Here's my definition of faith. And let's see, I'm going to spend the rest of the time together trying to prove that definition. Here it is. Faith is trusting God enough to act upon his word. Faith is trusting God enough to act upon His Word. Let me try to illustrate that for you. And I'm going to use an illustration from my own childhood. I grew up in South Florida, Palm Beach County, a little place called Lake Worth. Actually, we lived west of Lantana, if anybody knows where that area is, in a place called Floral Park. That's where I grew up. 6955 Boston Drive. I'll never forget the address, right? There was a beautiful little twin that grew up across the street. She happens to be sitting here. She's my wife. I mean, We've known each other our whole lives. And uh, we grew up in a little two-bedroom house, six boys and mom and dad. A little two-bedroom house that was in the kind of shape of the houses that my organization works on. I mean, leaky plumbing, leaky roof, you name it, we had it as a problem in the house we grew up in. Three sets of bunk beds and a little bedroom. Our floors were made of terrazzo. Now, terrazzo is nothing but a fancy name for concrete with colored rocks in it, right? It was as hard as this floor right here. Now, this comes into play in the story I'm about to tell. My dad, when we were growing up, six boys now, We were growing up always used to play games with us we didn't have much i mean we we were i mean looking back on it i realized we were poor i mean we ate a lot of sausage gravy and biscuits red eye gravy and biscuits which has a name i can't use here in church Um, we ate a lot of leftovers i always had hand-me-down clothes Uh, if your jeans got too short you cut them off and you cut them with that little pinking shears and you go to school and be made fun of all the time Um, we just didn't have a lot you know, we just did, didn't have much at all. But so we invented a lot of games, and my dad was good at that. My dad was a burly guy, stood about five foot nine, had arms this big. When he turned age sixty, he had to arm wrestle all of his kids to show that he could still whoop them. <laughs> I didn't get there; I got close. And uh, but anyway, we'd play this game where we would get up on the top bunk bed. And one at a time, and he would look at us and go, "Walter, jump!" And we would jump, and he'd catch me and put me down. And then my younger brother Stephen and I used to play this a lot. He'd go, "Steve, jump!" And Steve would jump, and he'd catch him. And then he'd take a big step back. We'd go through it again. Walter, jump! And I would jump. He'd catch me, put me down. Stephen, jump! Take another step back. I mean, it was a game of chicken. My dad was trying to kill us by landing on that terrazzo <laughs> floor. I mean, six kids were too many. I mean, he just had to... De- I, I, you know, the, the thing that confounded me with that game, though, was my little brother, Steve, always beat me at that game. I mean, Dad would get so far back, and I would just be, and I wouldn't do it. And Steve, it didn't matter how far Dad got back, he'd go, Steve, jump! And Steve would just jump. I mean, I used to think it was because, you know, like his elevator didn't go to the top floor. (laughs) You know, he's a few bricks shy of a load. You know, those expressions we use to say someone's nuts, crazy. But, you know, later I realized that wasn't it at all. The reason my little brother beat me at that game was because he trusted my dad more than I did. He knew that no matter how far away dad got, If he just obeyed my dad and jumped, my dad would catch him, right? My brother had more faith in my dad than I did. He trusted dad enough that he was able to act upon his word. I have a biblical example as well. If you have your bibles why don't you turn over to matthew chapter 14 for a moment matthew chapter 14 wonderful story one that i love i got to get my helpers out here i'm sorry it's just i even brought my large print bible and i still can't read it without these so john chapter 14 beginning in verse 22 Immediately, he, speaking of Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. By the way, any time in the Gospels when Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray or goes by himself to pray, something big is about to happen. Now, that should tell us something, right? If even Jesus went aside to pray when something big was about to happen shouldn't we need to pull aside to pray if we want something big to happen right all right and when it was evening he was there alone but the boat was already a long distance from the land battered by the waves. for the wind was contrary i love that verse first of all i love the calling the wind contrary you know i mean you just got your hair together right you go to walk into the car next thing you know man you got a problem because the wind was contrary Pam and I were trying to land last week at Tampa in an A321 Airbus and it's low to the ground we're just about hit, and I leaned over to Pam and I said man he, this thing is keep, keeps yawing this pilot's having a problem with it and in that moment the engine's gunned and he took on up and off because the wind was contrary thank God he took back off again You know, it's one of those when we finally did land, everybody applauded. You know, you've been on one of those flights before. The wind was contrary. This isn't like a child. This is a storm. Now, have any of you ever seen that it's a classic picture of Jesus walking on the water? In fact, you might find it on black velvet somewhere, right next to Elvis, right? If you go go shopping. I mean, you've seen the one where Jesus is walking on the water. It's a moonlit night. His hair is gently blowing in the breeze, and the lake is flat as a piece of glass. You know, I I think I know why the author drew it that way. Because somehow in my simple mind, it's easier to walk on flat water than it is rough water. (laughs) Now think about that. No, it's not like that at all. This is a storm. This isn't Jesus walking on a lake that is flat as a piece of glass. This is Jesus stomping across the waves in the middle of a storm that is about to sink the boat. It's an amazing, terrifying scene. It's not one of a moonlit night and calmness. This is Jesus stomping across the waves. And in the fourth watch of night, three o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and cried out in fear. I mean, wouldn't you? I've never seen anybody walk on water, let alone stomp through the waves in the middle of the night. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. You know, folks, any difficult circumstance plus the presence of Jesus should give us courage. Verse 28, Peter. (laughs) I just love Peter. Don't you love Peter in the Bible? Thank God for Peter. I don't feel so bad about myself all the time, right? I mean, Peter was always opening up his mouth and sticking his foot in it, right? I mean, he was always saying boastful things, trying to do things. Lord, I'll never deny you. Forbid it, Lord. Don't go there. He was always speaking up, acting like he was somebody. And so here's Peter. Peter says to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. You know. Sometimes I think we make Jesus way too serious all the time in the Gospels. I think Jesus had fun. And I think when he heard Peter say those words, and him knowing Peter, Jesus thought to himself, I got him now. Yep, I got him. All right, turkey, come. I mean, come on. Peter has just asked for a miracle to take place. He, of all people, very, being very impetuous, just blurts out, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come to you on the water. He asked for a miracle. And Jesus is like, mm mm-hmm. come on, come. Now, at that moment, Peter enters into what I call a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. He has the unmistakable command of Jesus come. Kind of like the guy hanging there, let go. Come. And in this crisis of faith, I'm sure in his head, there are three voices screaming at him saying, don't do it. The first one was his experience, right? I mean, Peter grew up as a fisherman, he grew up in his dad's family who was a fisherman. And Peter, his voice in his head of experience is saying, Peter, look, remember that time when you were a kid and the wind shifted suddenly and that boom came around and knocked you off the boat? You almost drowned in that water. Your experience tells you that water is for drinking, water is for boating, water is for swimming, but water's not made for walking. Don't do it, you're going to go down. Second voice in his head was probably the voice of his intellect, right? Peter, now I know you probably didn't take this in school, but maybe you did. Peter, you know that the elasticity of the water in no way can hold the mass and the point of mass of your weight when you step out on it. That physics tells you, your intellect tells you. That water cannot hold you unless there is a sudden 100-degree drop in temperature that freezes the lake so that you can walk on the ice. His intellect says, Peter, don't do it. And then finally, there's a third voice. Because at that moment when Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water, there are 11 other disciples in that boat that have their eyes fixed on Peter. This is the voice of what I call peer pressure. I mean, some of them are thinking, there goes Peter again. Who does Peter think he is asking Jesus for a miracle like that? Oh, let's see what happens this time. In fact, I bet if they had a vote, the vote would be 11-0. Peter's going down, right? How many times has God asked us as a church and us as individuals to do things And we're so afraid of what others might think. I'll be honest. Sometimes it's good to get gray on top or a balding mountain because you get to an age where you just don't care what other people think anymore. Look, what matters is what God thinks. I know, what would you have done in that situation? I mean, what would you have done? You have the unmistakable command of Jesus come. Does Peter trust Jesus enough to obey his word? I know what I would have done. (laughs) I'd have been like, I'd been hanging on the side of that boat. My knees had probably been shaking. I'd been like, man, I've got myself into it now. What am I going to do? And I would have taken one foot and I'd have stepped it over the side of that ship and I'd tried to feel, see if that was hard or not. And then I'd be like, ah, ah. If you read the next verse, Peter walked on the water. Let me give you a formula the unmistakable command of God, plus someone who trusts God enough to act upon it, equals a miracle. Now, I'm not talking about the stuff you might see on TV somewhere with what I call the name-it-and-claim-it health and wealth boys. I'm not talking about that kind of miracle. In fact, Jesus and God, Jesus through God, doesn't need to tell us any other things to do. Because, folks, he's already told us a lot of stuff to do right here. In fact, wouldn't it be amazing if we just obeyed some of the things in here and trusted enough god enough to act on these things things like love your neighbor as yourself do unto others as you would have them do unto you forgive others as you have been forgiven i mean i don't know dal but if we just focus on those that i just mentioned and trusted god enough to obey him in those every day we would see our lives change our families change our communities change we would see the world change we don't need any other commands than what he's already given us here do you trust God enough to act upon his word see that's what faith is that's what faith is you know, my brother and I, I told you about Steve a little bit. We grew up in really vastly different lives. It's amazing that we came from the same family. Um, I was a good athlete and a good student. I uh, went to college on a football scholarship. Uh, Steve, he grew up, and I mean he really grew up. He grew up to six foot four and weighed over 300 pounds. He was an outdoorsman he loved hunting he had one of those pickup trucks that you have to have an extension ladder to get into you know the ones i'm talking about the tires on that truck were bigger than any concrete truck tires you ever saw it was always the color of bondo right it was never ever (laughs) painted you know it was always in stages of repair he raised coon dogs on the side he had he earned a, a nickname, Bigfoot is what everybody called him, and he had Bigfoot's Blackwater Kennel. He was a sheet metal worker. He worked down in the ports in Tampa doing sheet metal work on ships. Well, you know, as he grew up and got married and stuff, I embraced faith. Pam and I were both saved together October 9, 1980, and we were baptized, and I wanted to share my faith with my brother because he lived it hard and large i mean he drank a lot and hunted a lot i mean he loved hunting so much he moved to the edge of a of a hunting reserve area so that he could hunt 365 days a year in season or not i mean he was just he was pretty well known in the area I remember one time when he was at our house, he and his wife, Amy, Pam was in our bedroom praying while I was trying to share the gospel with them. And uh, they just both kind of said, no, we don't, we don't need that, and, uh, and left, and we were, we were brokenhearted. We ended up moving to Texas. So uh, Actually, we moved to Kansas first, where I did my Master of Divinity degree, and then we went to Texas, where I was at Baylor, where I did my Ph.D. work and while we, we were at Baylor I got a call one day and it was because Steve had got what I called the double whammy he came home one day in February and his house was empty his wife had taken everything and left him and then just a few weeks later on a routine physical an x-ray showed a mass in his left lung and he had lung cancer he gave me a call said what had happened that he had been diagnosed with lung cancer and wanted to know if I could come down and spend some time with him before he went went in for surgery he was going to have to have a lobectomy and the lower lobe of his left lung removed and I said sure and so I went down about four days before surgery and spent with him and we just had a great time together we did some of our favorite our, our favorite things to do like we went to Waffle House and ate pecan pancakes uh, pecan waffles i mean that was one of our favorite things to do together and he'd get up every morning and he just loved singing to the top of his lungs whatever country song was most popular Then in the morning that was his way of waking me up in the morning and uh, we just had a great time together and I, I shared faith with him again and he said walter he said i'm just not ready for that I, i'm having too much fun and and uh, i just don't need that crutch Is what he called it i said well let's pray together though before he went in surgery went in surgery they did the lobectomy he started into some chemo and and radiation treatments and he seemed to be cancer free for a while it's about six months later i get another phone call that steve had collapsed at work uh, they rushed him to the hospital and uh, the cancer had reappeared but it had reappeared in his spinal cord uh, they did, they cleaned up his spinal cord, they fused some, some of the vertebrae together, and he had one of those clamshells, you know, that they used to put on folks to hold him together. And he came out and started some very intensive chemo and radiation, and actually got well enough to go back to work. And we were all very, very hopeful about that. But about another eight months went by, and uh, yeah, my phone rang again in Texas. Steve is collapsed again at work. They're rushing him to the hospital. I immediately uh, went home, uh, got with Pam, got my stuff together, ran to the airport, got on the first plane out to get to Tampa, Florida. He'd been rushed to Tampa General Hospital. Um, As I walked into the surgery waiting room, the surgeons were walking out to talk to our family, and they walked out and they said look we had to sew tumor to tumor just to close him up said uh, he just doesn't have long maybe just a matter of weeks of course we were devastated um, we just hoped against hope so he comes out of uh, surgery and finally gets back to a room and i go in to be with him and uh He just looks at me and says Walter B and by the way that's as a kid my dad was Walter I was Walter B um, Walter B can I come stay with you and Pam and your family for whatever time I have left I mean what do you say yeah, I mean you say yes of course this had left him a paraplegic he had no feeling from the waist down. He was confined to a wheelchair. And uh, so my eldest brother, Tim, and his wife, Neva, uh, helped him in a wheelchair and helped him get on an airplane and got with him on the plane. And they landed on a Saturday in Austin, Texas, and uh, got him in a car and came up to Waco, where, where we lived, and that was on a Saturday. And we got to spend that Saturday night together, just talking about things. When I saw him, I was just, I don't know, he'd been six foot four, 300 and some pounds called Bigfoot. Now he was six foot four, weighed about 145 pounds and was just a sack of bones. That night was a very special night because Sunday morning, I was pastor of First Baptist Church, Elmont, Texas, a little spot on the road, just north of Waco. And that Sunday morning, I carried my brother in my arms down into the baptistry and baptized him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He made it about four months after that. It was four of the most glorious months in the world. Sit up at night talking about the Bible. He was just so hungry for everything. He wanted to make up for lost time. One night he said to me, he said, Walter, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry I didn't listen earlier. He said, I wasted so much of my life. And I told him, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. I said, every time I get an opportunity, I will share your testimony with others that it's never too late that you can turn in the midst of the life's largest crisis, and that's facing your own eternity. And it was just an incredible, incredible, sweet time we had together. He got to watch Dallas hit the cycle for the first time in baseball. A single, triple, double home run. I remember him being in his wheelchair, so excited. He got to sit on a side in 1996 and watched me as I had the wonderful privilege of running the Olympic torch. He was there to watch that. We had just an incredible four months. It was hard, pain crises up all night, Uh, bed sores that wouldn't heal, just all kind of pain crises. And thank God for hospice and others that prayed and helped us. But it was such a joyful time too. And then on one Sunday afternoon, Steve's Heavenly Father said, Steve, jump, jump. And Steve jumped into the arms of his Heavenly Father. And isn't that what faith's about? Isn't it about trusting God with all these commands that He's given us and doing those in this world and understanding the miracles that happen when we just love our neighbor so that when we finally come to the end of our lives, without reservation or fear, we're able to obey God's last command when God says, jump. friends this morning i don't know where you are in your faith journey or even if you have a faith journey at all but god is telling you to let go of the things that you trust in this world god is telling you to come come to him trust him even like peter even if you start to sink jesus will be there to pull you up he just says come And then, when we read his word and understand the things that he wants us to do, then we'll be able to jump. To jump at loving our neighbor. To jump at forgiving people. To not wait. To just do what he's commanded us. And watch miracles take place. And then, as you get closer and closer to that fateful day, when the Heavenly Father looks out and says, Walter, jump, let go. I'll be able to do it without fear of reservation. I don't know what God's telling you to do this morning, but we're going to have a short time of invitation in just a moment. And it is my prayer that you trust God enough to act upon this word. God bless you all.
0: to worship I would love for us just to take a moment as a church just bow your heads close your eyes this next song is evidence and um, when we look around we've seen how God's moved we hear